Democrats' fault. It's Republicans' fault. They cheat. They suppress. You can point fingers anywhere. Plenty of blame to go around. Do you know whose fault it really is? The voters. For rolling over to the forces that have corrupted the elections in this country and simply giving up. And that's the truth. From TNN, the Truth News Network, and Dan Newman. Hey, it's the holiday season. We started officially this week, Thanksgiving on Thursday, Christmas a month later. It's time to pull all of the worrying and the fret and the angst and the anger and the hatred. Let's put it to rest for a little while. What do you think? Good morning, everybody. Welcome to TNN Live. I'm Dan Newman, and yes, I believe we can have peace even in the middle of chaos even in the middle of wrongdoing and evil doing on the parts of some people that really don't give a rip. They just want what they want, and they want everybody just to give it to them. Well, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. We did, and I'm glad to be back with you today because today there are a lot of things we need to launch into. And not everything's bad. you got to understand that. Bad stuff is what makes news headlines. Very few of the big media outlets want to talk about anything that's really good right now because even though there's not a lot that's good, there is plenty if you want to concentrate on the glass being half full. There's plenty to talk about. We're going to get into a lot of that. We'll pepper it with some facts that aren't maybe warm and fuzzy facts. You know what I mean. We got to do it. Bad stuff happens every day, too, doesn't it? Well, let me listen with me. To some friends up the road from Cotton Valley looking for some uh, good news. Hey there, Mr. Postman. How about a letter from me? Make it good news.
clapped her hands. I heard you clapping your hands a little bluegrass music. Sydney and the rest of the Cox family just up the road from Shrevesville, Louisiana in Cotton Valley, the birthplace of my beautiful bride, Marianne. And those are good family friends and really good people, and I know you are too. I hope you had an amazing weekend, that you got to spend time with friends and family. You watched some good football and soccer, or as you're supposed to say, if you're from somewhere else but the United States, it's not soccer, it's football, F-U-T-B-O-L. We had a great weekend. A little bit under the weather, went to South Louisiana, went to New Orleans, one of my favorite places on earth. Saw a football game that didn't go our way, but it ended the season, a really good season for our high school football team that we're heavily involved in, Evangel Christian Academy in Shreveport. Really good people. And it's really good when you look at your life objectively and you look behind and you see the bad things, those are the things that typically we let pop out and dominate our thoughts. But isn't it wonderful when you look back and say, you know what, I'm not going to let that get me down. Yeah, bad things happen to everybody from time to time. Some we earn, some we don't. We're just caught in some situations, the making of which is not always ours. We just get caught up in it. That's part of life, isn't it? Find something to be thankful about today, something specific. Maybe, let me challenge you. Make your little list, even if it's just mentally, and think of 10 things that are really good in your life right now. And maybe not just today, but in the recent past, 10 things. And as you think of those, stop after each one and say, you know what? I'm really blessed. You can't go wrong looking at life that way. As one great American said a long time ago, if you're listening to this, it means you haven't yet assumed room temperature, (laughs) which is what our bodies do after we die. That, of course, the great Rush Limbaugh, one of the many good things that he had to say. Well, where are we going to go today? Had a little unusual thing pop up over the weekend. I don't keep up with much of the political stuff that goes on in South America, unless it's, you know, Brazil or one of those big countries. But Argentina did something over the weekend that it really surprised me. I knew they were having a presidential election, but I just assumed it was going to be the same old SEMO. We always hear about the bad stuff that happens in South America, but never much about good stuff. Well, an economist, Javier Malay, who was a cable news fixture, he was elected to the Argentine Congress riding a wave of anti-socialist sentiment in 2021, but he moved up a slot. He was elected the nation's president on Sunday. He'll take office in a few weeks. What's so big about this is Malay campaigned as a libertarian, and if you're not familiar with libertarian politics, our Steve Baker that'll be here tomorrow, by the way, he is a libertarian. He's more so in the full, unfettered, equal opportunity, do anything you want to from that school of thought. That's somewhere a little bit right of true Republican Party ideology. But it's a good thing. 
because in that scenario, the people are even more involved in its government than we're seeing happen right now, especially in our government. He's a capitalist, anti-socialist, and he's leading his young political movement. They call themselves Liberty Advances against the long-standing Peronist socialist establishment. As a Latin American libertarian, he also took socially conservative positions that don't align with a common understanding of mainstream libertarianism in the U.S., like opposing the legalization of abortion, discouraging business dealings with communist countries, including one of Argentina's top trade partners, who might that be? China. He's against expanding Argentina's trade with China. Go figure. The candidate representing the socialist current Minister of Economics, Sergio Massa, announced to his supporters before official election results had been published, he had called Malay to concede that Malay won the presidency. 86.59% of the vote tallied at press time today. Published by Argentina's election authorities, Malay got 55.95% of the vote, compared to just 44% for Sergio Massa. A double-digit lead made especially be notable because Massa defeated Malay in the first round of voting in October. So Malay is succeeding Massa's boss, current President Alberto Fernandez, under whose leadership the country's experienced an unprecedented economic crisis fueling skyrocketing inflation, joblessness, and social anxiety. Sound familiar to you? Kind of like what's happened here under this president. Fernandez chose not to run for re-election, and the presumed candidate expected to replace him, current VP Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, also chose not to run after being convicted of corruption crimes in late last year. <laughs> I guess maybe that gives you the idea. It wouldn't go good for you in an election if you'd been uh, convicted of corruption crimes. Massa delivered a speech at his campaign headquarters. In it, he urged his supporters to wish Malay luck and work to improve the lives of Argentinians collectively. I thought that was an interesting piece of news for a lot of reasons. You want to see democracy succeed in every nation because that's the only scenario in which you find freedom and justice for all. Kind of like our nation used to be before we had big government that already has or they're finding new ways every day to seize control of everything for Americans. Hmm. We're going the other way from Argentina, aren't we, under Joe Biden? Well, we'll get into a little more news about that. You probably have heard now over the weekend, a brand new NBC News poll shows that Joe Biden's popularity has slipped to its lowest level in his presidency. His terrible polling numbers represent concerns among a bunch of voters and picking up more every day that are worried about his age, not just things like his age and how long he's been around in Congress and the White House as two-term vice president under Obama, but his foreign policy decisions, 
management of our economy. In this new poll, now this is NBC. They obviously, if they're going to lean one way or the other, they're going to lean hard left. Only 40% of voters approved of Biden, 57% disapproved. That marks the president's worst approval and disapproval numbers since he assumed power in the White House. His approval rating trended downward since January. Let me give you an example. January approval, 46%. April, 43%. June, still 43%. September, 41%. November, 40%. What stands out in this new poll is the shift among voters ages 18 to 34. Now, this should shock every Democrat. In September, 46% of these voters said they approved of Biden's job performance. That dropped 6% in one month. That ain't good. Biden's approval rating dropped to 31% among these voters. The poll sample of 1,000 voters the week of November 10th through 14th with a 3.1 margin of error. No matter how you couch it, it's bad news for the president. It's bad news for the Democrat Party. So here's a Monday morning question for all of you. Do you still think Joe Biden is going to be the candidate to be reelected president next year, next November? Do you really think he's going to hang on that long? I predicted almost two months into his presidency, he would not make the reelection and be the candidate to run and win the Democrat nomination for this upcoming presidency. I just didn't see it happening. There's still consternation about who would be the obvious one to replace him. They've already made it very clear they don't want the Vice President Kamala Harris to be one of those candidates that try to step up and grab the mantle of the presidency to go forward. So who's left? Well, the obvious ones are out there. I haven't heard or seen anybody talking about any new uh, amazingly startling presidents to show up or president wannabes to show up. Gavin Newsom obviously has been politicking for that spot for a long time. It's kind of like, hey, I'm over here. I'm over here. I'm ready to go. I'm watching. Just let me know when you need me. And he goes back to California and begins to once again tear ta- California to pieces, destroying the economy out there and running rampantly over freedoms in California, some of the worst in the nation. He doesn't have a lot to run on if he uh, should become that candidate. But obviously, the number one reason Democrats would consider him is because he is the governor of California. They got a lot of folks in California. And by the way, a lot of Democrat and even further left Californians out there. They like Gavin. I don't know him personally. I just don't like his politics. Well, are you ready to get into the news from over the weekend from Israel? Let's do this. Let's take our first break. Go refill the coffee cup. We're going to do that right after this. I'll take a Coke. Is Pepsi okay? Is Pepsi okay? Is Pepsi okay? Ow! 
Our puppy's okay. Is a shooting star okay? Is the laughter of a small child okay? Um, Are you with me? You seem confused. Let's role play. Now. Uh, okay, I'm Steve. I'm an actor. No, no, and... no. Just order something. Uh, I'll have... You will have a nice cold glass of the best thing you ever tasted. Okay? Okay. I think you might be just saying it wrong. You gotta say it with pride, okay? Okay. Oh, yeah, kind of. Pepsi's more than okay. It's... Okay. Okay, what have we learned today? You want a Pepsi? I want a Pepsi. She wants a Pepsi. There you go. My little John. Okay. I've got to come up with my own catchphrase. Okay. Raid Shadow Legends. I mean. <laughs> you pick your champions, they're glorious, and their shields, oh, they glisten like uh, wet otters. But the bad guys, they're Lovecraftian, they're spooky, they're um, um, big. And then you go to battle, and it's like... <laughs> and finally, your foe is vanquished, and that satisfaction is such a primal feeling. Ooh, Download Raid Shadow Legends. Play for free. If you want a smart truck, you want an F-150 with available pro-trailer backup assist. If you want a strong truck, you want an F-150 with a high-strength, military-grade aluminum alloy body. If you want a capable truck, you want an F-150 with up to 13,200 pounds of available towing. So to recap, you want the smart, the strong, the capable Ford F-150. In the clown car of the deep state, you will never find a greater den of scum and villainy. You need a hero. Here again, blaster in hand, is Dan Newman. we got a lot that we're going to get into today. A lot about what's going on down in South America. We're going to hear some specific things coming from this new presidential election in Argentina. And it is a really big deal. There aren't a lot of democracies down in South America. And there are certainly, in this particular case, are so many similarities between what happened in the United States when uh, Donald Trump, a true Republican, a true conservative, and how our nation prospered during his four years, and then we just went on the skids immediately, even before Joe Biden took the oath of office back in 2021. Just because everybody knew he was coming, our economy started grinding to a screeching woe. We're going to let you hear some more specifics about Malay, the new president-to-be down in Argentina, but why don't we do this? Let's, Let's flip over and talk for just a little bit about the latest on what's coming out of the Middle East. A United Kingdom doctor who worked at this Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, this doctor, now he's from the UK, he says there were areas of the complex, the Al-Shifa hospital complex, where he wasn't allowed to go on threat of being shot if he showed up there. Now what could that be for? He said he frequently saw dodgy-looking non-medical characters going in and out of this restricted area, adding hospital workers avoided the area for fear of Hamas. I was welcome everywhere else, 
And as I say, the doctors and nurses there were very welcoming, very kind, and the hushed tones under which this was said were consistent with all the other hushed tones with which Hamas was discussed. You know, people were generally fearful. The doctor who spoke on condition of anonymity said this, I cannot emphasize too much the air of collective paranoia that existed there, he said. His comments come after critics of Israel have cast doubt on the Israeli military's claim that Hamas used the Al-Shifa facility as a base of operations. It's common knowledge over there. It's been going on for a long, 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 long time. And everybody that lives in Israel, even real Israeli, I'm not talking about the uh, Palestinian civilians. They know it as well, but even Israelis know it. Al-Shifa is a base for Hamas to hide and remain hiding, and it's below the Al-Shifa hospital areas. I wonder if anybody will ever agree that that really is there. Probably not until Israel gets in there and finds out for themselves and shoot videos. And then even on a national stage, a lot of people will not listen to it. They may watch it, but they're not going to believe it because it's Israel. I'm 70 years old. I never have been able to get my arms around how one sector of the world simply despise Israelis just because they're Israelis. I just don't get it. Meanwhile, have you heard over the weekend really concentrated, supposedly accurate conversations about an Israel-Hamas hostage deal that we hear is edging closer despite continued fierce fighting in Gaza? U.S. and Israeli officials said a deal to free some of the hostages held in Gaza is edging closer. Now, they didn't get into, for obvious reasons, the big intricate details of this, but we do know about 240 hostages were taken during the terrorist deadly cross-border slaughter fest when they went into Israel on October 7th. That prompted Israel to invade the territory to wipe out the terrorist group Hamas. Israeli tanks and troops stormed into Gaza late last month. They've since wrestled control of large areas of the north and northwest and east around Gaza City. But Hamas and local witnesses say terrorists are waging guerrilla-style war in pockets of the densely urbanized north, including parts of Gaza City, and the sprawling Habalia and beach refugee camps. Even as this fighting is raging on the ground still, Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Michael Herzog, in an interview on ABC this week yesterday, Israel is hopeful a significant number of hostages could be released by Hamas in coming days. That's a quote from him. Reuters reported on the 15th that Qatari mediators had been working on a deal between Israel and Hamas to exchange 50 hostages. And they'll do that, or supposedly that's the idea that's being worked on. They'll do it in return for a three-day ceasefire that would help boost emergency aid shipments to Gaza civilians, citing an official briefed on the talks. 
Now, when we get through with this, I'm going to give you an editorial comment about that very thing, what we just said. At the time, these officials said general outlines had been agreed, but Israel was still negotiating details. And where do we fit in all this? Of course, Joe Biden's in the middle of it. I don't understand. We have no right to tell any sovereign nation what to do or what not to do. But people in our government, they just act like they have power over Israel. Joe Biden told reporters yesterday he's not in a position to say when the hostages might be out. Quote, I want to make sure they're out and then I'll tell you. (laughs) It's kind of like Nancy Pelosi. You remember when they were about to pass Obamacare, 1,300 pages, 2,200? I don't know. It was thousands of pages in the uh, Obamacare bill. And at her press briefing, somebody in the media asked her, have you read the bill yet? And it was to be voted on that day. Have you read the bill yet? And she smiled sarcastically and said, well, we've got to pass the bill so we can find out what's in it. Our president says, I want to make sure the hostages are out, and then I'll tell you, they're out. (laughs) Yesterday, Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulaman told a press conference in Doha that the main obstacles to a deal are now very minor, mainly practical and logistical issues remaining. A White House official also said the very complicated, very sensitive negotiations are making progress. Do you really think that this administration has the kahunas and the foresight to actually be able to sit down with people that despise the air, resent the air that every Israeli individual and every American individual on the planet is breathing? And they're going to trust what these people say? And then my other question, why just 50 Who came up with that magic number? We're told there are 240, maybe even more than that, hostages. Why would anybody in the free world give them anything unless they were made it to be a contingency for any agreement to release the hostages? These talks coincide with Israel preparing to expand its offensive against the Hamas terrorist group to Gaza's southern half, which they haven't gone into that part of Gaza yet. And they're signaling it by increasing airstrikes on targets Israel sees as layers of armed terrorists. However, Israel's main ally, that would be us, the U.S., cautioned Israel on Sunday not to embark on combat operations in the south until military planners have taken into account the safety of Palestinian civilians. Think about how arrogant that is. This is coming from the White House. We cautioned Israel not to embark on combat operations in the south until military planners have taken into account the safety of Palestinian civilians. I mean, here we are a month into it. How many times have we heard the Israeli people, they stopped any kind of incursion into Hamas for three weeks, 
and every day on all kinds of media told the Palestinian civilians in Gaza to get out of Dodge and go south. I think Israel's military planners have got everything done and Mr. Secretary of Defense, we don't need your advice and they don't either because they've got it right way more than you've ever gotten it right in the calls that you've made at the top of our military, even before you were at the top. Remember Benghazi, that whole sloppy thing over there, the reason those four Americans were slaughtered in Benghazi is because our Secretary of Defense then was ahead of CENTCOM, and he called off the rescue. He called off the SEAL Team 5 members that were in the air, ready to go into Benghazi and save those people, and he wouldn't let them land. You just can't even give an answer. Why? On any of this coming out of the Biden administration, none of it, none of it makes any sense. Oh, and by the way, in the middle of all this over the weekend, Iran stepped in and they piped up. They wanted everybody to know what they think. They told us over the weekend, the Iranian regime has adopted the label axis of resistance. They're using that to describe themselves, their allies, and their terrorist proxies throughout the world. Despite the precedent of the Axis powers, the losing Nazi side in World War II and the Axis of evil after 9-11. The former head of Iran's Revolutionary Guard has warned the new war fronts could open if Israel continues its offensive in Gaza. This guy's name is Moshe Rizeh, now the head of the Supreme Council for Economic Coordination, told the Hezbollah-affiliated Al-Mayadim, the axis of resistance will play a bigger role in the future, and the Zionist regime will definitely lose this war. You may remember W. George W. Bush as president. He famously included Iran as one of the state sponsors of terror when he called it an axis of evil. Our second goal is to prevent regimes that sponsor terror from the threatening from threatening us or our friends and allies with weapons of mass destruction. Some of these regimes have been pretty quiet since September 11th, but we know their true nature. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving their own citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. I hate to think what might happen if Iran actually opens up and gets full in on this conflict over there, because they have no breaks. When they get mad, they go postal. And if they get started, they'll throw everything they possibly think they need to against anybody that comes up against them. And you and I, we don't know the details. We don't know what their capabilities are. We don't even know what our capabilities are. We're told we're pretty powerful, that we're still supposedly 
the number one power on earth, but that doesn't mean it's true, right? Doesn't mean it at all. Well, about that Al-Shifa hospital over the weekend, one spokesperson for the Israeli government came forward and he laid out the case. It is really happening. Hamas is really using that hospital and they're actually, it's causing what they're doing is killing innocent people. And this spokesperson came out and he gave some absolutely specific examples with names and they have videos. Of course, I can't show you the videos because this is audio, but honestly, some of the videos from this, I wouldn't show you anyway. One word describes Hamas. And some will say, you know, in a bad operation, a bad company, uh, a bad military, not everybody, the rank and file are bad. We heard that how many times when people were talking about Christopher Ray and the FBI, and they had to do a, um, a, at the beginning of it, an excuse. We know the rank and file and the FBI are not bad people. It's the people in management there. I don't think we can say that anymore. I think a huge majority of the people at the FBI are in the tank for the way the FBI is and has been operating for far longer than any ones of us want to admit. So just listen to this guy tell you some facts about that hospital and Hamas using it. Omar Tsiano was taken hostage by Hamas terrorists during the massacre of October 7th. Noah was taken into Gaza alive. She was held hostage by Hamas in Gaza City next to the Shifa hospital. During ongoing combat in the vicinity of where she was held captive, Noah Hamas kept her was killed and Noah was injured. I repeat, she was only injured. An independent pathological report has determined Noah's injuries were not life-threatening. I repeat, Noah's injuries were not life-threatening. What happened to Noah? The world should ask what happened to Noah. According to the intelligence we have in our hands, a concrete, concrete intelligence, Hamas terrorists took Noah into Shifa hospital where she was murdered quickly. Hamas murdered Noah inside Shifa hospital. Our thoughts are with, the Noah's, with Noah's family. We send our heartfelt condolences to the family. We did not reach Noah in time. This is only make the IDF more determined to do everything, everything in our power to bring all our hostages home. We've also gathered more intelligence from the hospital proving that Noah Marziano was not the only hostage taken by Hamas into Shifa hospital. I will now share concrete evidence of hostages. One from Nepal, one from Thailand, taken from Israel during the Hamas massacre on October 7th. After ruthlessly massacring 
and taking people hostage, the terrorists fled to Shifa Hospital. They went to the hospital to hide. Here you can see Hamas terrorists drove back from the massacre. This is an Israeli military jeep they brought into the hospital. I want to repeat it just to make everybody understand. They're bringing an Israeli jeep, a military jeep, into the hospital compound, a place terrorists should not enter. They're entering with a military jeep. This is 1050, one of the Toyotas that used Hamas in the 7th of October are bringing hostages into the hospital. We have found this Toyota, a different one, with all the gear, a Nuchbe Toyota, hidden in a garage inside the hospital. She was ready to go to the 7th of October massacre, like other Toyotas going back into the hospital, using the hospital as a terror base. Another Jeep, another Israeli vehicle, military vehicle, entering into the Shifa hospital, using the Shifa hospital as a human shield shelter to Hamas terrorists, bringing military equipment to the vicinity of the hospital. Click. This is 7th of October, 10.55 a.m. The evidence I will share was sent by Israel to diplomatic channels to the countries of those civilians. Here you can see Hamas taking a hostage inside the vicinity. He doesn't look even, he even doesn't look, need, to, need a treatment, but they're taking him inside the hospital. I will now share this video that shows the same hostage entering into the hospital with the gunmen, terrorists inside the hospital. This is the main entrance of the hospital. Click. This is at 10.55 a.m. They're entering another hostage. Gunmen are entering another hostage from those countries I mentioned into the vicinity. The terrorists are guarding the room. We have not yet located both of these hostages and rescued them. We have not yet located them. We do not know where they are. They're still hostages we need to rescue. The Israel Defense Forces, the world must remember, Hamas is holding the elderly, men, women, children, babies, babies, hostage. The Israel Defense Forces has a moral obligation to bring everyone, everyone of our hostages home. We will not rest until we do. Hamas was hiding and murdering our hostages in Shifa Hospital. Hamas was building terror tunnels underneath Shifa Hospital. By now, the truth is clear. Hamas wages war from hospitals, wages terror from hospitals. Everyone 
who cares about the further, the future of humanity must condemn Hamas. Thank you. Questions, please. We're going to leave this right there. And obviously, we couldn't see. You couldn't see the video images as he was sharing what was happening there. Let me just say this. It is abysmal. And there is no question. That hospital is being used. We can't say that the Hamas leaders are actually headquartering there because we haven't seen it yet. However, Israel has replicated through spies getting in there the footage. They've created a 3D image that shows Hamas's military leadership offices, whatever you want to call them, are three levels below the main hospital level in Al-Shifa Hospital. They are infamous for using civilians as shields across the the whole spectrum. They think nothing of putting some innocent person between them and somebody firing at them, and they do it because they feel like they are endowed with the right to destroy people's lives, even when the individuals who are being used for shields have not done anything wrong. Just because they happen to be Israeli people or... Hamas, not Hamas, but um, Palestinian civilians, they're put there to be used as the Hamas military terrorists choose to use them to further their cause. For anybody that is Muslim, and I know we have Muslim people that listen to this show, let me say this. I think all people on earth should have an equal opportunity to pursue the dreams that they want for themselves and their families, whatever those may be. There aren't many countries on the planet that give people those rights. For 240 years, the United States of America led the the world in that area. I don't know under this current president that we can say that automatically and believe that it's true. But it's still, if it's not the top, It's in the top two of the countries on earth where you can go in freedom and liberty. You're not guaranteed you're going to achieve the things that you want to achieve. But what you are guaranteed here is you're going to have the unfettered right to go seek for it. Not a guarantee you're going to achieve it, but you're going to have the opportunity. Over there in the Middle East, it's exactly opposite of that. Muslim people, be honest with yourself. Be honest with your God. If you're not, if your religion is not lifting people up, you need to take a hard, cold look at what's actually happened there. Much more ahead. He'll never let you fall to the lies. Your bulwark against the tide of fake news. Dan Newman, TNN, the Truth News Network. So you guys grew up together? Yes, yeah, since third grade. What are you looking at? I wasn't I'm not looking at anything. We're not good enough for you. You look for something else? No, I, just, I don't know. What are you, big supermodels? Oh, yeah. Who's us? Supermodels! What do you model? Gloves? 
What are you doing? The girl's totally into me. Brad, eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get a little angry when you're hungry. Better? Better. So, ladies. So, losers. Stacy, relax. I'm sorry. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. You do your thing, and you do it well. Now, it's time to do it bigger. It's time for Shopify. Shopify makes it easy to set up your online store, expand into new sales channels, and bring your brand into the real world. Get everything you need to launch your business today with Shopify. about what's going on in the Middle East. Yemen's Houthi rebels. Yemen. Remember, they're supposed to be an ally of the United States, Yemen. That's the place where when we brought those hundred plus thousand people out of Afghanistan, we demanded, we the people, the United States, we demanded our military not bring these people directly to the U.S. unless they were vetted first. So our government, the Biden administration, cut a deal with Yemen's leadership, the Houthi rebels. I mean, you don't like it? I don't like it, but that's what they did. And they brought these people there, and they told us they were vetting these people to make sure they were not um, of the Taliban or any other Middle Eastern jihadi organization. We were told that was done successfully. We find out later it wasn't. Most of those people that ended up here, we don't know who they are, didn't know it when they got here, and many of them have jumped ship where they were staying in the military bases across the U.S. They just disappear. wonder where they are. Well, guess what Yemen's done? Houthi rebels, they hijacked an Israeli ship in the Red Sea over the weekend. They took 25 crew members hostage. The Iran-backed Houthi rebels said they hijacked the ship over its connection to Israel and would continue to target ships in international waters that were linked to or owned by Israelis until the end of Israel's campaign against Gaza's Hamas terrorists. How long do you think they're going to go down this road? You've seen conflagrations, hopefully never been in yourself, but between bullies and innocent people in your life. It begins when they're kids. I mean, little kids. And whoever the bully is, typically if they're not confronted by someone out of the crowd they're trying to intimidate or bully, they'll keep on doing it. It emboldens them to keep going and keep going and keep going. Muslim jihadists are bullies, and they know that. They have been endowed, at least they think they've been endowed, with unilateral right to do anything to anybody who disagrees with them or who they disagree with. And the ultimate thing is, remember, in the Quran, when they speak in the Quran about us, 
Now, who are I'm who am I talking about when I say us? Not just the United States. The Quran tells good Muslims to convert the infidel to Islam. Who's the infidel? Anybody that's not already Muslim. Convert them or kill them. That's not me. You can get an English version of the Quran. I have it. I've read the Quran several times. That's in there with a whole bunch of other stuff that'll make you scratch your head. We need to wake up and realize we may be the number one nation on earth. We're told that. We've been told that. You and I have throughout school, after World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, we still think and act like we're the best nation on earth, and anybody that disagrees with us is just not worthy. But we're finding out now there are a whole lot of people around the world that disagree with that. In the past, I think that they were still there. On the most part, I believe those people were still operating. They just weren't being as loud as they have become now. Why is that? Because they knew we had leadership on the most part in Washington that would crack the whip if somebody tried to take a shot at us. And every time somebody did take a shot at us in our history, we did go back and do something about it. In this administration, they know they're okay. It all began, became most obvious when Bashar Assad in Syria was He was gassing and killing his own people. And then President Barack Obama, he threatened Bashar Assad on international television and said, if you do that again, you're going to cross our red line. Well, Assad said, okay, you want to be the bully here? I'm going to cross the red line. He gassed several other small villages in Syria and killed those people. What did Obama do? Nothing. That's where this acknowledgement from the Middle East comes as we don't believe you're going to be the big dog. We don't think you are the big dog in this. And they're trying to unite all of the diversity in the Islamic part of the world. They're trying to get together and get a united front to take on every place on earth that is not Islamist and either convert the infidel or kill the infidel. What else do we have to talk about? Well, over the weekend, former President Trump got out and he did some wandering around the nation. He ended up in Texas yesterday. He went there and he was talking about what he would do if he wins in 2024 Basically, what he said was, we'll go right back where we were when I left office and we'll pick back up. And he he said, we'll target gangs and thugs, and he will rejoin his plans for illegal immigration crackdown. Yesterday, Texas governor, um, I just went totally blank. Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott endorsed Donald Trump for this run coming up this next year. A lot of Texans are glad about it. 
but Trump vowed to renew his crackdown on illegal immigration. We're going to take over that border again. We're going to make it the most secure border in our history. He promised, Trump did, to target gangs and thugs who illegally crossed the border. He appeared alongside Donald Trump, Greg Abbott, and uh, he said they could do it. They did it once and they can do it together. Trump said, I'm going to make your job much easier, Mr. Governor. If elected next year, you'll be able to focus on other things in Texas. Yesterday, even earlier, Trump had endorsed Abbott for his re-election bid in 2021. And President Trump went to the border. He served meals to Texas National Guard soldiers, troopers, and others who were stationed at the border over Thanksgiving. He and Governor Abbott handed out tacos. A former president shook hands and posed for pictures. You don't see our president, today's president, doing much about that kind of stuff, do you? You really don't. So what everybody in the United States is doing is concentrating on the big things in their lives. Has that changed a bit? Can you look back four years and remember what was going on at your house, in your family, in your bank account, going shopping, buying gasoline, groceries, buying clothes, going to get medical checkups and stuff like that. Do you remember what it was like then compared to now? I would have never, I would have lost a massive bet if somebody told me back then that three years from now, all of this wondrous stuff we, the American people, have experienced under a Donald Trump presidency is going to be gone. I would have bet big time that even Joe Biden couldn't kill it as quickly and as demonstrably as he has. And boy, he has done it. The economy right now, I know we've got a bunch of fish to fry. There are a lot of things out there that need to be fixed. Immigration being a big one, and of course, none of these exist in a vacuum. When they appear and do their stuff, it just daisy chains outward from there, and it affects everything, every part of our lives. Tammy Bruce, over the weekend on Fox News, she's a contributor there. She nailed it. She nailed it when she said this. Tammy Bruce is here, fired up by the panel, by the look the, on your face. The well, patronizing. Yeah. My God, we're good. your place in the world. Our place in the world right now is trying to figure out if we can afford Thanksgiving dinner. That's <laughs> our place in the world. Whether or not we can actually go somewhere to see the family, because still because of gas prices. You're right. That's our place in the world. You stop it with this patronizing garbage. It's and it's not just the the economy. It is number one. Um, uh, Americans are concerned about, it's the number one concern, but they're concerned about our rights and freedoms. Uh, That is 82% concerned. Higher crime, 82% concerned. Political divisions, 82% concerned. The uh, Israel-Hamas war, 74% concerned. Terrorist attacks, 73% concerned. That is Joe Biden's problem. And the problem is, this is not the final Joe Biden problem. It's as if every day... A new one opens up. We've got a bomb in our economy very few are talking about, but it is about to really explode, and it will change all kinds of stuff if and when it happens. What are you talking about? Commercial real estate. Commercial real estate. 
it's facing the possibility of a substantial number of bankruptcies. And if that happens, it could ultimately hammer even more than it is being hammered now. Our economic recovery threatened the wounded banking industry. Overall, 30-day-plus delinquencies in commercial mortgage-backed securities, meaning the number of borrowers for commercial properties that failed to make the required payment in at least the last 30 days. Listen to this. It increased from 3% from one year ago to double that as of October. The delinquencies indicate danger in the commercial real estate sector as they show that many of those could become bankruptcies threatening an already hurting banking industry and exacerbating any economic downturn. One expert said this, commercial real estate is in deep trouble, could constitute a major risk to the banking system and the recovery. That's from Desmond Latman, a senior fellow at the America Enterprise Institute. In fact, he said, I would characterize the situation as a slow-moving train wreck. The underlying problem? Occupancy rates have slumped post-COVID since many workers are now working in at least at home and if not all the time, some of the time. Vacancy rates for offices have continued to trend up since COVID. That forced many businesses to adopt a remote work policy to continue operations, a change many workers have been reluctant to let go of, by the way. In 2019, the vacancy rate hovered around 13%. It's now up over 20%. The pandemic was an aggravating force that gave the shift from brick and mortar to laptop purchasing critical mass 20 years after it began. People, even and especially those who were suspicious of internet retail or liked the in-person shopping experience, those people have been forced to move their consumption online started during lockdowns and under stay-at-home orders, and now it's just it's just about the same price, but you don't have to go buy it. You don't have to spend money to go shopping. They ship it to you. Many of them liked it, came to trust it, and now they see very little reason to go back to physical establishments to buy what they need. Delinquency rates for offices have seen the biggest jump among commercial real estate. That's up 2% on 30-day-plus delinquencies last year to 6% now. Industrial property delinquencies increased from 043 to 2.5%. Multifamily property delinquencies increased from 085 to 3% over that same time frame. Now, we don't ever think about this. Nobody ever talks to us about this. But this is a really bad signal about economic trends, and I can't see any way we're going to get that big, big ship turned around in any hurry. It didn't get there in that too long a time, and a lot that had to do with that was the COVID lockdowns because when that started, nobody was planning for our commercial real estate stuff to be impacted like it is. Nobody prepared for it because nobody thought it could happen. It did. And it's still here, and it's getting worse. Now, let's flip the coin. If you're a positive person, if you're one of those people that never, you you never find yourself saying, the sky is falling, or oh no, what am I going to do? If you think like that, 
Start looking for the good or the possibilities that come from all of these little things that they pop their head up every now and then and we didn't even expect would happen. Instead of thinking about those as damning destructive things, think about them and try to find the flip side of it. Is there something good that could come out of this? Is there some way I could benefit myself, my family, my business? You know, when you look at the United States rearview mirror, we've had some really, really difficult times economically through the ages. I mean, we've lived through a couple of them. The late 70s. You remember that? You remember Jimmy Carter as president? Prime interest rates went close to 20%. Mortgages, 30-year mortgages, were at 15%. Can you remember that? Even go further back than that, the Great Depression. Americans lost everything, period. Everything was gone. And it started in situations like this where people didn't have any options. They weren't being led by economic leaders and political leaders in Washington weren't throwing out opportunities, weren't giving people thoughts of how to do this and change that and what those things might happen. Entrepreneurship wasn't that big a deal then because you had to have a buttload full of money to get something going, a new business. Things have changed and they got better. And at least since then, the Great Depression, three generations of Americans have come and gone. And look at the positive changes that those three generations made. Not because everything was rosy. I mean, we had a couple of world wars in that period. We had Vietnam. We had Iraq. Twice. Afghanistan. So it wasn't because... The landscape was perfect. It was because there were enough people, more people did this than didn't. They looked at the stuff going on and said, hey, what can we do to work our way through this, be successful, and maybe create, open up an opportunity here that we never thought about before? Now, does that mean everything you think it would be a good opportunity is going to be good? No, it doesn't. Our Declaration of Independence plainly stated, this is a place where everybody's going to get to come and have equality in pursuing your dreams, not equality in achieving your dreams, but everybody's going to have the chance to do it and do it their way and try to make it work. That whole thought process, under this administration, under this Democrat Party, They don't make any efforts whatsoever to hide it anymore. We want you to give us unfettered control of your life. We're smarter than you. We control two and a half parts of the three parts of government. And so just bow to us. Give us your money. We're going to take care of everything for you because we know better than you how and what to do. Now, you can say I'm wrong. But just because you think something's wrong doesn't mean it's wrong. It's more likely that my thought that I just shared with you is the actuality of what's going on and why 
is this going on? Why is this still happening? Do you think people in Washington don't see and understand it? On the most part, those people are not stupid. They're pretty smart. And yeah, you can say what you want. I can say it. I do all the time. They're making sure they're taken care of. They're getting theirs. They don't even try to hide that anymore. It's supposed to be. It always has been supposed to be. Our government is of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that only is applicable and true today if the people that is represented in what I just said happen to be those people directly in our federal government at some level. It's government of those people, by those people, and for those people. Can we change it? Well, nothing changes if nothing changes. And I'm sad to say, but I think it's pretty obvious now Joe Biden's not going to do anything to make it better. Team Biden had an ounce of integrity. They wouldn't give Iran or its proxies a wooden nickel. By the way, just for the record, the $10 billion of frozen money originally allowed Iraq to import electricity and gas from Iran. Had nothing to do with food and medicine. All right. Now, these frozen funds are in an escrow account in Baghdad, and that is just where they should remain, probably forever. We're at war. War. Even though the State Department may not know it, just like the $6 billion in frozen assets in the Biden hostage deal. Money is fungible, as John Roberts correctly said. You give Iran any money... It means they can spend a similar amount for their various nefarious terrorist murdering purposes. Somebody in the State Department must have taken an economics course at some point. That's Larry Kudlow, a great economist, a very conservative economist. He worked uh, diligently in the Trump administration, White House. Uh, Before that, he worked for Ronald Reagan He's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I've never heard him make a prediction or say something that didn't come true or wasn't already proven to be true economically. And so now, finally, some of the big guys that are out there pointing fingers and placing blame where it's supposed to be placed, whoever's causing it should be the one that gets blamed. Instead of pointing fingers, oh, no, it's them over there. It's not me. I didn't have anything to do with it. Let me give you a specific example of this. We've heard, you've heard, I've heard my entire life about the FDIC. The FDIC, what does that stand for? Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, what does that mean? When you have money on deposit in banks, the FDIC insures up to a certain level of money in your account. They're going to guarantee it. The government is going to guarantee it. If something happens to that bank, you're going to get your money, at least up to that dollar value. I think it's up to $250,000 now. The FDIC was created coming out of the Great Depression. What started the Great Depression? The banks all failed. So everybody that had money on deposit in these banks, I'm talking about everybody, wealthy on down. There was no insurance. You weren't getting any guarantees about your money being safe. FDIC was created 
And for a number of years, it was there. There were some bank failures, and thankfully, there were a few times when the FDIC had to step forward because of insuring a bank that failed, but not very often. In fact, we all got pompous. That could never happen to us. We look back in history when we used to get history, U.S. history, when our kids were going to school, when I was going to school. We talked about the Great Depression. We talked about the bank failures. We talked about the FDIC. But the first thing against the FDIC, it's a freaking U.S. government entity. That means it doesn't matter what's right to do. All it means is it's the government, and we're moving further and further to the left in every part of our government, and this is a great place to go and hide wrongdoing economic wrongdoing in our U.S. government, and it just starts at the top and it just leaks right down. Now, at least once a week, we bring you our statesmen for this time in American history. I'm talking about, talking about Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana. He's a great orator. He's got a great wit, but sometimes he just gets mad. And when he sits in these Senate committee hearings, dealing with these people, these managers in government, outside of government that want something else from the government, they all come before his committee in the Senate. And Friday, he went postal. Listen to this. What the hell's going on at the FDIC? It's, it is deeply disturbing and troubling. How long have you been at the FDIC? I joined the board as uh, a member in August of 2005. Okay. Almost 20 years then, huh? Yes, sir. Have you ever sexually harassed an employee at the FDIC? No, sir. Apparently, you're the only one. Um, I mean, I just find this incredible. A former female employee recalled her male colleagues saying women needed to use sex to get ahead at the FDIC as they stared at her. Did you read that? I did, Senator. Quote, according to one young woman, it was just an accepted part of the culture. During lunch with an examiner, another young female employee who had become friendly with this person she was having lunch with, The guy she was having lunch with complained to her about his marriage, telling her he wasn't having enough sex. And then he said to the young woman, obviously, if I walked into this office and you were naked, I'd... Did you read that? I did, Senator. Did you read the the, the, uh, 2020 Inspector General's report when it said that the people at the FDIC were acting like they were in Animal House or Porky's Revenge? Did you read that report? I I read the Inspector General's report. And what did you do about it? Well, I was not chairman at that time. There were 15 recommendations, if I may say, 15 recommendations in that report. What did you do about it personally? Were you, what was your position? At I, the I was a member of the board at the time, but yeah, I was What not, did you do about it personally? At that time, I didn't have the responsibility of you the chairman. You didn't do anything, did you? Not at that time, Senator, Okay. No. Did any of your other fellow board members do anything? As a general matter, that falls to the chairman who's responsible for the day-to-day It was somebody else's problem, not yours. No, I was a member of the board to the extent that we were consulted, but in this matter, it's really a management 
You didn't think you had a fiduciary obligation to those young women and to the to the organization and to the banks that put up the money? Well, certainly as a board, we have that obligation, but it really falls to the chairman to um, take the lead on this. Somebody one. else's fault. Chairman, and that's what you're saying, isn't it, Mr. Chairman? No, I think the, the board— the board, Sounds to me like it. Well, not— Well, when the banks last spring screwed up out in California, you blamed it on their board, didn't you? Found that the root cause of the issue was the management of the institution. Right. They also found accountability for the supervisors. The the board was blameless. Like, is that right? Is that what you're saying? No, I think the agency. Kind of like the board at the FDIC is blameless. You and your colleagues ought to hide your head in a bag. This is no country for creepy old men, and they got no place at the FDIC. And this wasn't a newsflash for you. You had a 2020 report and you sat on the board and you didn't do anything. And your colleagues didn't do anything. Isn't it amazing when somebody in the government finds a reason and doesn't even hesitate to hold somebody else in the government accountable for what they did or didn't do? This is the chairman, the chairman of the FDIC. He's been there since 2005. And you heard the conversation about the horror show that happens to young women at the FDIC. And remember, nobody's trying to hide what's going on. They talk about it rampantly. It's like if you're a young woman, you're going to be approached for sexual stuff if you work in the FDIC. And the inference that comes from that is if you want to advance in your career, you got to sleep with somebody. Now, I've heard of this happening at different places through the years. And look, wherever there are human beings, there's going to be sin. There's going to be wrongdoing. Not everybody is honest. Not everybody is loyal or faithful. I get all of that. And it's true. Sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes there are honest mistakes. But when you create an environment and a culture at a company or an agency of the federal government, it doesn't matter where it is, but when the atmosphere is conducive purposely for that reason to propagate that and let it spread and it be okay. And then the one person, this guy's the chairman of the FDIC. And what did he do? What did he do? He hit his head in a bag. And he let these creepy old men take advantage of these young women regarding sexual favors and just being totally open about it, honest about it, not trying to hide anything. Now, nobody in politics gets a free pass about being human. And they shouldn't. None of you are given a free pass, nor am I about being honest. We all need to understand to be successful in life as a person, as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, as an employee, as a boss. We need to purposely create an atmosphere of honesty and trust and accountability. And there's other things that weigh into what we're facing in our nation today that stinks. But that's probably the greatest contributor. We're teaching our kids, if you want to do something, go do it. If you don't want to do something, even if it's right, you're supposed to do it, legal and all that. 
Go do it. Whatever it is, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. Either way, it's okay. That's flying by the seat of your pants. Wow. Let's move on. Do you know that we actually have one of our 50 states that has decriminalized hard drugs? Hard drugs. What falls into that category? You tell me. What falls in? Injectable drugs. The big time, the bad things. The ones that you see people dying from all the time. IV stuff. And this state is finding out they made a mistake and they're trying to reverse this liberal experiment. Where is it? Which one of the 50? Oregon. Oregon. Two years ago, Oregon's liberal experiment to decriminalize heroin and fentanyl. They're considering now reversing key parts of that new bill they passed. Rationale behind the original initiative that was called Measure 110 Well, they felt like if they decriminalized hard drugs, it would make access to treatment easier for addicts. Huh? Now think about that. They make it legal. Okay. Make it legal. Decriminalize hard drugs. And that would make access to get treatment easier for addicts. Now, Politically, Oregon is very far left. I don't guess I need to say anything beyond that. So currently, the support for this Measure 110 in Oregon, the first state to take the step of decriminalizing hard drugs, it appears to be waning. Whereas Measure 110 was backed by 58% of voters back in 2020 in November, a recent Emerson College poll shows public opinion has swung drastically. 56% of voters now say they want that law removed. Oregon decriminalized drugs and a total breakdown of society followed. Overdose deaths skyrocketed. Drug use spread like wildfire. Junkies using meth and fentanyl openly all over the major cities in Oregon. Now a majority of voters have changed their minds and want to re criminalize. It's been pretty awful, Matt Sigman, owner of Gardner Flooring Covering in Eugene said. Sigmund says the homeless have sheltered under the awning in front of his store for months. But there's been a change since the new measures were enacted. In the past, he said, we were dealing with older drunks. But since Measure 110 passed, the people are younger and much more belligerent. They've been defecating and urinating. For the past three weeks, Cops have been sweeping the homeless people away so I and my staff can come to work. Under Measure 110, addicts are given tickets for drug offenses. And the tickets only cost them 100 bucks and a fine. However, the penalty would be waived if the addict rang a self-help line and sought treatment. So this law, when they passed it, it's got a great idea, a concept, but only if you follow the rules, right? What were we just talking about? 6,000 people were ticketed in Oregon. 6,000, but fewer than 125 called the self-help line. We don't even really 
have one successful example of somebody that went from a citation issued on the street to self-assessment to addiction services to a place of wellness. This comes from a member of the Eugene, Oregon City Council named Skinner. Skinner warned that Oregon was on pace to shatter the record for overdose calls for service and shattered the record for overdose deaths. Police officers and firefighters are administering Narcan. That's the life-saving drug that will reverse an overdose and most of the really hard drugs. He said they're giving Narcan, life-saving Narcan, at an alarming rate. Police are not demanding the complete reversal of Measure 110, by the way. They are supporting making drug possession a criminal offense again. Wow. That would force addicts to have compulsory treatment. A measure which would recriminalize hard drugs could go on the ballot next year in November. And we're going to keep a watch on that for you. We have some really Biden family syndicate information that came out over the weekend for you. I bet you haven't heard about this. Well, you'll hear about it from Representative Comer from Kentucky. Yep, hard, cold facts. That's up next at TNN. Real truth, real news. TNN, the Truth News Network. We got you something. It's a deep, deep dish pepperoni and bacon pizza, and we gift wrapped it with over three and a half feet of bacon. You've been working so hard. We love you. Get a Little Caesars large bacon wrap deep deep dish pizza for just 12 bucks. Try our convenient app and pizza portal pickup. Pizza, pizza. <clears throat> Off to gang and showtime. Uh, do you know this guy? I'm not going to cry, am I? Only if you don't believe in the power of friendship. Really? You guys are good. <laughs> Movies right when you want them. Watch unlimited movies instantly for only nine bucks a month from Netflix. That's so cute, it's stupid. Budweiser presents the world's first star in your own radio commercial. Okay, guys, whenever you hear this sound, insert your name. Hi there. Your name. Sorry I'm late. Sometimes there just aren't enough hours in the day to be a neurosurgeon and a swimwear model. Oh, am I thirsty. How about it? Your name. Got anything tall and cool? Oh, Budweiser long necks, though. Your name. You are so thoughtful. But of course, Bud's the first choice for every occasion. Ah, you know I have a confession to make. If I ever had a son, I'd want to name him. Your name. Oh. Your name. Come here. Now. Mm. Your name. Your name. Your name. Well, you did very well in your first commercial. Have a bud. You've earned it. This bud's for Your name. Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri. way, tomorrow, Tuesday, as you know, every Tuesday, pretty much every Tuesday, our investigative journalist partner, Steve Baker, will be with us in our second hour. He was unable to be with us last Tuesday because he was covering a trial in Washington, D.C. But at the last minute, I got a call from him Thursday night saying, hey, I'm free tomorrow. Do you want to 
go on the show and do our usual thing? And I, of course, said yes. So if you missed Friday's TNN Live show, you missed Steve Baker being here, had a lot of interesting news, and probably tomorrow when he joins us in our second hour, he'll have a bunch of new stuff. It's getting quicker. Everything's getting quicker. And it's is flying by, and we don't want you, because we don't want to miss it. We don't want you to miss anything. So make a note, Steve Baker will be back in the saddle at 10 a.m. Central Time tomorrow morning. But between now and then, we got some news over the weekend coming out of Congress, the Oversight Committee Chair, Congressman Comer from Kentucky, And I want you to listen. Everybody's hearing that. We have heard from the very beginning of the Biden family syndicate stuff when they started seeing money actually coming over here that was going to various members in the Biden family. They were calling all of those deposits coming from one person, one entity to another account, calling them loans. Now, there are a lot of problems that go along with that. First of all, you don't have to record when you take out loans and get cash, you don't have to give the IRS that information. Most people don't realize that. But if you lend somebody money and it has terms, in other words, you're going to pay it back over a certain period of time, this much a month or quarterly or whatever the terms are, and they start paying it back and there's interest that's being paid back to you more than what you gave them, you've got to report that as income. So the latest go-to explanation by members of the Biden family syndicate about this money that is going from here to there, this person in the family to that person, those are loans. Congressman Comer weighed in on what the latest is. Anytime the Bidens have money, they're going to claim it was a loan because you don't have to report loans on your taxes. In early November, the House Oversight Committee investigation into Biden family business dealings detailed how two checks, one for $200,000, the other $40,000, had landed in Joe Biden's personal bank account. They were both marked loan repayment. Now, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer has issued subpoenas to President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, brother, James Biden, Biden and Biden family associate Rob Walker to appear for depositions. This is an investigation uh, that has been going on for a year now and has turned up zero evidence of wrongdoing by the president uh, because there is none. Uh, but Republicans continue to double down on a baseless, a baseless a smear campaign against the president and his family. Four times, Ms. Jean-Pierre said baseless in that press conference. Baseless, baseless investigation. Baseless, not quite. Four bank records memos have been released since March, which have included revelations about 20 companies, mostly limited liability companies or LLCs in Biden family member names. Also remember that for years, Mr. Biden has said he never discussed business with his son. I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business. Over the summer, the White House changed that to the president's claim that he was never in business with his son. Was never in business with his son. Then, following the release of the details of the two checks, ranking oversight Democrat Jamie Raskin put out yet a new twist, saying that Mr. Biden did not profit from his family members' business ventures. They've laid out a predicate of facts 
including the money, including all the limited liability corporations, the LLCs. And now the next logical step, like any prosecutor would do in building a case against a potential suspect, is to put them in front of you under oath and ask them very simple questions. Do you know about this account? What is your connection to this person? Tell me about this email. On top of the subpoenas, Chairman Comer has also requested that additional members of the Biden family and their associates appear for transcribed interviews. They include Sarah Biden, the wife of the president's brother James, Hallie Biden, the widow of President Biden's eldest son Beau, who was romantically involved with Hunter, and Tony Bobolinsky, Hunter's former business partner. On May 13, 2017, I received an email concerning allocation of equity, which says 10% held by H for the big guy. In that email, there's no question that H stands for Hunter, big guy for his father, Joe Biden. Right now, it's probably worth a quick recap on how it's alleged those loan repayment checks, starting with the one for $40,000 or 10% of $400,000, reached Joe Biden's personal bank account. First, Northern International Capital, a Chinese company associated with CEFC, wired $5 million to Hudson West 3, a joint venture established by Hunter Biden and a CEFC associate. CEFC is a Shanghai-based energy company with links to the Chinese government. Then Hudson West 3 sent $400,000 to an entity owned and controlled by Hunter Biden. That was called a Wesco PC. Next, Hunter Biden wired $150,000 to Lion Hall Group, a company owned by James and Sarah Biden. Remember, James is Joe Biden's brother, Sarah is James's wife. Sarah Biden then withdrew $50,000 in cash from Lion Hall Group. Later the same day, she deposited it into her and James Biden's personal checking account. And that's where House Oversight alleges the check to Joe Biden came from. A few days later, Sarah Biden cut a check to Joe Biden for $40,000. The other loan repayment was for $200,000 after James Biden received $600,000 in loans from a rural hospital operator called AmeriCorps, which was struggling financially. According to company bankruptcy documents, James Biden received these loans based upon representations that his last name, Biden, could open doors and that he could obtain a large investment from the Middle East based on his political connections. On March 1st, 2018, AmeriCorps wired a $200,000 loan into James and Sarah Biden's personal bank account, not their business bank account. And then on the very same day, James Biden wrote a $200,000 check from this same personal bank account to Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's attorney, Abby Lowell, has long suggested this is all a political stunt, but following the subpoenas went further in a statement to CBS News. It goes on to say Hunter is eager to have the opportunity in a public forum and at the right time to discuss these matters with the committee. And that does seem to be a strong indicator that he may be willing to publicly testify mm. about the case and what he has described as sort of the weaponization of his addiction. What the Biden family signed off as loan repayments may well be just that. But speaking to Maria Bartiromo on Fox News, Mr. Comer, who served as a director on South Central Bank for 12 years, explained that loan repayments raised questions as to how they were reported, if at all, to the IRS. All we see in the Biden transactions are loans, 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 but you never see where they made any interest payments on loans. Very seldom do you see where they even made a principal payment 
on the loans. I think the Biden, the next big question the Biden family, including Joe Biden, is going to have to answer to the American people is, what exactly are the terms of these loans? What type of documentation do you have on these loans? Were you going to pay these loans back? Were these forgivable loans? Were these grants? If so, in addition to influence peddling, which we have clearly proved the Bidens were doing, they have tax fraud implications with the IRS. Uh-oh. Could be a hammer on the way. But wait a minute. There's more. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. All this money, this big dollar stuff that seems to be flowing through the hands of pretty much every member of the Biden family syndicate, there's more to it than just what we've already figured out and heard about. You remember when Hunter's foreign business deals started drying up when he was going through his recovery from addiction to his father's 2020 presidential campaign? So Hunter tapped into a rich new source of money that has since kept him afloat. What would that be? Democrat supporters of Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Now, this is not something coming out of nowhere. This is according to hundreds of pages of documents. Evidence gathered by the feds and congressional investigators show that Hunter collected over $6 million since his dad began running for the presidency in 2020. That's a pretty short time period. The assistance flowed primarily from prominent Democrat donor and respected Hollywood lawyer Kevin Morris, who the first son reportedly befriended at one of his dad's fundraising events. Go figure. In response to just the news' fact-checking inquiries and trying to get some comments from Morris, Morris's lawyer, Brian Sullivan, he responded that, I'm going to quote, we believe we know the identity of the source and that it is an individual who's been engaged in the campaign of harassment against Morris that includes doxing that has resulted in threats on Mr. Morris's life. We further believe that his individual has only disclosed certain information to cause Mr. Morris public embarrassment and may have outright misrepresented facts and statements about Mr. Morris as part of this campaign of harassment. In short, we do not believe this source is credible and certainly cannot be relied upon for any accurate information. So, Morris's attorney Sullivan, he did not disclose any details about the credibility of any particular source, did not detail any incidents of doxing or threats to Kevin Morris's safety. He also uh, forgot to contradict any of the factual assertions in the story and that when they were brought to his attention, he just ignored them. Hunter's lead lawyer, Abby Lowell, didn't respond when they were asked to comment. In addition to Morris's help, Hunter grossed over a million bucks in the sale of his paintings. You remember those. That came under a deal with an art gallery that was first brokered by one of his father's fundraisers out in California. The records show the financial assistance from Morris to Hunter began during the height of his father's campaign in early 2020, mushroomed over the years 
to include many aspects of Hunter's lifestyle, like, uh, you know, a five-figure monthly rent at his California home. Five-figure. You know that is more than $10,000 a month. More than that. Child support payments, some travel, legal bills, federal and local tax debts that total over $200 million. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Hunter had somebody pay his IRS and state tax bill, in other words, over $2 million there, I wonder if Hunter claimed the $2 million as income. Hmm. Would love to see his tax return for that year, wouldn't you? 20 months after the funds began flowing, Morrison Hunter, in October of 2021, they committed to paper the transactions as loans. Federal and congressional investigators have identified promissory notes between the two were over $5 million, many covering payments that Mara sent directly to vendors and debtors that total at least $4.4 million. That's documented. The House Oversight Committee has those documents in their hands. So this flow of money from Morris, who, by the way, is one of Hollywood's most respected talent attorneys, whose projects range from South Park, the TV franchise, to the Book of Mormon musical, raised questions among the feds inside an Arkansas courtroom and within the Biden family. And this is coming from government documents. James Biden, Hunter's uncle, told IRS agents and the federal prosecutors in an interview he did not know why Morris had been so helpful to his nephew, the president's son, who was identified in the IRS interview report by his initials, R.H.B. Morris was helping R.H.B. a lot, but James B. didn't know why. That came from the IRS summary of the James Biden interview. James B. thought that this might have been because of his ego. R.H.B. asked James B. to thank Morris because Morris requested a thank you. Now, this again is from the IRS. James B. had no understanding of what the team of people means and has no knowledge of what Morris had done for R.H.B. This is coming from the interview summary. James B. was not sure if there was a loan between Morris and R.H.B. James B. thought that the money was significant enough that R.H.B. asked his uncle to say something to Morris and thank him. James B. didn't recall that specific discussion, only said thank you on behalf of the family. House Oversight and Accountability Committee Chairman James Comer, who you just heard from Wednesday of last week, sent a letter to Morris asking him to volunteer information and consent to an interview about his assistance to Hunter. Public reporting and evidence reviewed by the committee suggest that you have personally lent money to or otherwise satisfied debts on behalf of Hunter Biden, wrote in this letter, Comer did. Comer said, television, the Just the News, No Noise television show on Friday night said that the new evidence opens an important line of inquiry, heightens his committee's interest into securing an interview with Morris soon. We've all wondered how Hunter's continued living this lavish lifestyle. We wondered who was buying the artwork. 
We wondered how he was paying child support payments and getting by on a lifestyle fit for the rich and famous, Comer said. Now we know. We look very forward to bringing Mr. Morris and asking him about those loans and if he has any intention of the president's son ever paying him back, Comer said. Add to that. The House Ways and Means Committee may question IRS whistleblowers Gary Shapley and Joe Ziegler at a public hearing next month about what they knew about Morris. Morris's name didn't come up in that long interview that those two IRS whistleblowers had with the House and Means Committee previously. After the committee made public documents this fall showing FBI and IRS agents investigated the transactions for a while. In addition to Morris's support, Hunter Biden scored sales of at least a dozen of his paintings from George Burgess Gallery in New York City and Berlin, ranging in prices from $13,000 to $85,000, the documents show. Records show that the artwork sales generated over a million bucks for Hunter Biden since 2020. Documents also disclose one bundle of 11 paintings delivered an $875,000 windfall from a single buyer. And we could just keep going on and on and on. What's that old saying? The noose just gets tighter and tighter around the Bidens. I don't see any uh, really good way for this to have a good outcome for any of them. And that's one more reason. It just kind of heightens my expectation for Joe Biden to somehow go to the ranch or wherever he's going to go, go to the beach, wherever he's going to go, and not run for president next year. That's a whole can of corn if we get going down that lane. Oh, my gosh, you think that's going to dominate news in a greater way than it has been before? You wait and see what happens with that. By the way, today we have a complete 3,000-word story posted at truthnewsnet.org and the title of it is new evidence reveals how hunter biden paid debts with loans from democrat donor art sales and we're getting all this information that's kind of top line information and the questions immediately pop up the same ones that the irs would ask you if you were being audited uh this loan that this person or this bank gave to you. What are the terms of the loan? Can we see the documentation? It's not really a loan unless there's a document that details the sources and the details of whatever the loan agreement is, verbal or otherwise. Nobody's talked about that particular thing, but I guarantee you it's being questioned. Check that article out today. Got a lot of answers for you. A lot of things have been going on, folks. Meanwhile, the entertainment business is looks like it's limping back. We've had the big, uh, the big holdouts, walkaways, whatever you call it, picketing going on in the entertainment industry out in L.A. And now, more information's coming out. The climatologist crazies that have been dominating the far left part of the Democrat party now for 20, 25 years. 
we got some information over the weekend. The richest 1% of all the global elites on the earth, 1%, the richest 1%, their jets emit as much carbon as the bottom two-thirds of citizens of Earth do. 1% of the global elites, they emit as much carbon with their planes and jets as the bottom two-thirds of the people do. Private jets, private yachts, multiple holidays every year, garages full of luxury cars, investments driving, profiting from high-polluting fossil fuel industries, These are just some of the factors that combine to see global elites who comprise 1% of the planet's population. Their vehicles emit the same amount of carbon as the world's poorest two-thirds. Five billion people, in other words. And analysis was published yesterday by the nonprofit Oxfam International. They give the details. Oxfam, O-X-F-A-M International. Google it and go pull this report down. All this as the same rich and famous super emitters from business, finance, entertainment, politics, they tell the less fortunate to mine their carbon footprints. (laughs) While claiming to care about our environment is a shared challenge for all of us. Not everyone's equally responsible for meeting desired outcomes. The richer you are, the easier it is to cut both your personal and your investment emissions. You don't need that third car or that fourth holiday, or you don't need to be invested in the cement industry. Climate equality, a planet for the 99%. That's a good name for an article or a book, right? Well, that report was based on research compiled by the Stockholm Environment Institute. And it looked at the consumption emissions associated with different income groups up to the year 2019. The report was published as world leaders prepare to fly for climate talks at the COP28 summit in Dubai later this month. Among the key findings of the study of the richest 1% globally, that 77 million people are responsible for 16% of global emissions related to their own private consumption. Did you get that number? 77 million are responsible for 16% of all of the global emissions. That is the same share as the bottom 66% of the global population by income, or 5.11 billion people. The report says this, the income threshold for being among the global top 1%, it was adjusted by country using purchasing power parity. For example, in the U.S., the threshold would be $140,000, whereas the Kenyan equivalent would be about $40,000. Within country analyses, also painted very stark pictures. Example, in France, the richest 1%, They emit as much carbon in one year as the poorest 50% in France do in 10 years. Excluding the carbon associated with his investments, Bernard Arnault, the billionaire founder of Louis Vuitton and richest man in France, 
has a footprint 1,270 times greater than that of the average Frenchman. The key message to this is that policy moves must be investigated to curb the very richest who claim care for the planet but are betrayed by their very actions. Where I come from, we call that hypocrites. That's hypocritical. We think that unless governments enact climate policy that is so-called progressive, where you see the people who omit the most being asked to take the biggest sacrifice, then we're never going to get good politics around this. While the current report focused on carbon-linked only to individual consumption, the personal consumption of the super-rich is dwarfed by the emissions resulting from their investments in companies. Nor are the wealthy invested in polluting industries at a similar ratio to any given investor. Billionaires are twice as likely to be invested in polluting companies that the average for the standards and poor 500 previous Oxfam research has shown. The international COP28 climate conference in Dubai, it begins the last day of this month, runs through December 12th. The UAE edition in a nation renowned for being a major oil and gas producer is the latest in a series of COP meetings on the impact of climate change and on measures pledged by governments to take care of it, including limits on involving greenhouse gas-producing activities. The first conference of the parties, COP is formally called that, was held in 1995 in Berlin. The gathering has since been held in various cities and on different continents, which means everybody that goes got to fly, and they fly on private jets or they fly commercially, that spend more money and create more carbon gas than do the private ones. Organizers are expecting more than 70,000 people to dis- going to descend on Dubai's Expo City for COP28, numbered among them activists, climate activists, climate nuts, billionaires, presidents, indigenous leaders, Hollywood entertainers, business executives, monarchs and diplomats flying in from every corner of the world. And we keep revealing these horrible things that just prove beyond any reasonable doubt that these people, the ones that are preaching to you and I about our carbon footprints and what, what are you going to do about your carbon footprint? Oh, you got you to gotta buy a $130,000 electric vehicle and get out of those gas burners. While they're riding around in 60, 70, 80 million private jets that burn dozens of pounds of fuel every hour that plane is in the air. There's no similarity between the two. You just can't justify it. You really can't. And by the way, having enough money to fly in a private jet doesn't mean you ought to be flying in a private jet. Yeah, I know this is America. You're free to do whatever you want to do if you can afford to do it. Chase your dreams. I get all that. And yes, I've flown in private jets quite a bit in my business career. And I did it for the sake, in most cases, of convenience, but in most of the other ones, because I was going so far away and I had other people with me and it was about business 
and we would have had to leave days earlier and stay days longer, which cost the company a bunch of money. But we could afford it. And we didn't do it like every day or every week. We did it when it was necessary to do, not when we could afford to do it. Does that mean it's all evil or it's all right? Not saying that at all. Sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to get things done. And sometimes it's just not fun. Oh, by the way, speaking about carbon issues and government overreach, after some federal appeals court rulings, the Gulf lease sales that we told you about had been canceled by the Biden administration. After the courts weighed in, the Gulf lease sales are scheduled for next month on the 20th. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's down in Louisiana, in New Orleans. They ordered last week, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management announced that its schedule lease sale, 261 is the number of that sale in the Outer Continental Shelf in the Gulf, is on for December the 20th. September, a federal judge ruled the Biden administration must go through with offshore lease sales in the Gulf and do so by September 27th, as originally planned, and under the original conditions. The Fifth Circuit concurred, but they amended the rule, pushing back the lease sale date to November the 8th. Last week, the court ruled that the Biden administration must hold a lease sale within 37 days of its ruling on Wednesday. It also ordered BOEM to include 6 million acres in the Gulf that had previously been removed by the Biden folks for the sale. Earliest this year, they reached a settlement with environmental groups opposing the sale to purportedly protect an endangered Wales series. I'm from Louisiana. I've been offshore in the Gulf of Mexico a lot. Never seen a whale. Never seen a whale down there. And they don't have any whales in the New Orleans Zoo. Hey, guys, thanks for joining us today. It's been fun, a lot of information. We're going to be doing it all week. And Steve Baker joins us tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.